As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Our guest today is retired Victoria Police Chief Inspector Rob Bailey who's seen a lot over the course of his career. Among other things, Rob was part of the legendary Victorian armed robbery squad in its heyday. 
the war between the squad and Melbourne's armed robbers is the stuff of legend. And it's behind some of the biggest Australian true crime stories of the last hundred years. It's also been the inspiration for many a fictional plotline, including for that of the hit movie Animal Kingdom. Unfortunately for Rob, he had a front row seat for one of the biggest real-life stories to come out of that war, the Russell Street bombing. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. Rob was standing outside the Russell Street Police Headquarters in downtown Melbourne. At the precise moment, a car bomb exploded on the 27th of March, 1986. Constable Angela Taylor was killed and 22 people were injured. We begin this episode with Rob reading the entry he wrote into his official police diary that day. On duty 8.05am, admin duties, diary and ratings to 11am. Packing of equipment pending move. The fraud squad was relocating to St Kilda Road. 11.30 spoke to Senior Detective Ross Forster, Castle Main CIV, regarding Frontier Homes Proprietary Limited. Office to 12.20 to 3.50 Collins Street, Tax Office to 1pm. Injury on duty during bomb blast. See report completed off duty 5pm. So it's a short sentence for one of the most significant events in Melbourne history, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think you gave the move more um, words. Moving offices, the fraud squad's moving over to St Kilda Road and then I was injured in a bomb blast. You know, one of the amazing things that uh, uh, I was in Cyprus during the Turkish invasion. Wow. And uh, so I'd been blown up. Uh, several times and shot at and uh, and strafed and mined and mortared huh. and whatever. So to me, it was just another day at the office at that particular time, which sounds a little bit ridiculous. But at that particular time, it was profound because I recall I'd actually been to the tax office to get forms for the all the detectives. I was a detective senior sergeant at the fraud squad and uh, I got the troops I think there were 74 of us back in those days, uh, all their tax forms and whatever, just being a good guy. And uh, they ended up on the rooftops sometime later. And uh, I, I walked up the Trobe Street and turned into Russell Street and there was two parked cars and I saw the Commodore parked across the north door and I've gone, that's a bit strange. And it was bloody eerie because I looked left and right. There was no one. Basically, at that one o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, you would have buses, traffic, people walking everywhere. There was nothing apart from one car that was driving north uh, through the intersection of Latrobe Street and Russell Street towards uh, where I was standing in between the parked cars on 12 metres away from the Commodore. And I looked at my watch and I said, I've got an appointment at one o'clock and I'm just about to run across the road and I thought, no, I'll let this car go through first. And I'm glad I did because I would have been standing beside the Commodore when it went up. I know that Ian West, uh, who's a magistrate, was standing in the doorway of the court and there was no other cars traversing through that area at all, nothing. I know one of our favourite people, Charlie Bazina, handsome yes. Charlie, we call him, had parked his car a couple of cars down and he was going camping with his children that weekend and so instead of walking towards the police station, he walked in the other direction to buy camping gear. Yes. Mm, and that's why Sam Bears. Yeah, yeah, and that's why he wasn't next to the car. Yeah, I know Charlie quite well. It's a miracle that there was one fatality 
Look, it was bizarre. And uh, the only other people that were there was this woman and a young girl who were actually standing on the footpath behind me. And I was on the road between these two parked cars. To this day, I'll go to my grave wondering what the hell ever happened to that woman and that young girl. Wow. Uh, there was no mention in the 21 or 22 people that were hurt uh, of them. Crimes Compensation Tribunal, all the police reports and whatever, there was just, it's just, you know, it's bizarre. Uh, everything goes in slow motion, and it does. It is actually like a video recording in slow motion. And I look back at this car and when it exploded, and a front piece of the bumper bar was flying towards me, and this sounds ridiculous, but I actually chose a rounded bit on that bit of the front bumper bar to let it hit me on the wrist rather than my head. Now, it would have been travelling at the speed of sound, but it was in slow motion, and I avoided the jagged edge of this piece of metal. Wow. Um, I was blown back into the court wall about one and a half metres up, so I've been blown back 10 or 12 metres, airborne, and there's still a big hole in the uh, bluestone wall there where you can put your fist in, which is the, the bit of metal that hit that wall. Two detectives who I'd uh, I'd previously seen just on the corner of the Trade Street, two fraud squad guys came running around the corner and picked me up. And I immediately, I, <laughs> I've still got the notebook somewhere. I immediately took my little notebook out and my first entry was at 1.01pm. Now, mind you, my hair was on fire. I had glass embedded in parts of my body. My arm was, wasn't broken. It was uh, cracked. I, I couldn't hear anything. And I made my first note at 1.01 p.m. And then I saw this guy running from the scene, and I thought that could be the offender. And um, so I took off after him. Anyway, he got away, and there was a guy from the, who, who was a reporter, whom I knew from the, the Herald Sun, photographer was running up towards the scene and uh, there were still explosions going off and particularly though were the tyres actually of the cars that were parked nearby including Charlie's and um, I told him to F off I flashed my badge because uh, I wasn't in uniform of course and he just kept running so if you have a look at the scene one of the favourite famous pictures of the scene you'll see a camera lodged on the footpath near the, the car that was because I round armed him uh, <laughs> And coat hangered him, and uh, he dropped his camera, and another explosion went off, and glass was strewn everywhere. So he decided to bugger off, which was a, probably a good idea because he would have been standing beside the tyres that were exploding. I then worked, believe it or not, for the next two hours. I was assisting uh, with keeping people out and whatever. I jumped on the radio at some particular stage because everyone was saying there's multiple explosions and whatever, and I described in very ver verbose terms to shut the world up. up. I, I'm actually at the scene and and uh, their tyres exploding. There's only one car that's uh, that's gone up. And um, and then uh, probably, I don't know, probably two hours later, Paul Delianis, uh, Assistant Commissioner, grabbed me and he said, Rob, you're off the hospital. They threw me in the back of an ambulance and I ended up at St V's and they were flushing my eyes out and getting glass out and... Whatever. To this day, I still find bits of glass coming out of my body, all sorts oh of places. Oh, my God. Yeah. Really? Occasionally, yeah. And so I went home and my wife was beside She She'd rung the, uh, my ex-wife, had rung the uh, fraud squad and said, where's my husband? Because she'd heard about it. And another bizarre thing is that at that particular time, to create a diversion, these fellows had, as I understand it, attempted to rob a bank at Tunstall Square, I think. The entire thing was a diversion, was it not? Well, partially it was 
just part of the big war going on between the armed robbery squad and the armed robbers of the day, but also a diversion so that they could carry out this robbery. No, no. Well, it probably was, but the, the bizarre thing is my wife was walking past the bank when that no. happened. No. So I'm getting blown up as she's walking past where the, some of these offenders apparently were. My God. What a small town. Uh, yeah, it is a small town. But anyway, <laughs> she was beside herself, of course, and, yeah. and I got home and I thought nothing of it. A couple of beers. Did you stuff. really, though? I mean, I'm wondering about your your mental health. Like, in that moment, were you kind of hypervigilant? And the fact that you went back to work and had to drag you out of there, were you, I'm imagining you sort of fighting like a cat being dragged out of this situation. Were you wanting to get back into it? Were you, I can't imagine you wanted to lay down and rest and relax. It's a very, very interesting question. And, uh, I mean, I was in the armed forces uh, in the weekend warriors at CMF for about six or seven years. But I did a lot of full-time training. And then I was also in the police force. And I was taught to fight, never to flight. I don't understand what flight is. I still don't. And this is where people don't understand where uh, first responders are coming from. They are taught to fight, not to freeze or flight. So my natural reaction is, oh, well, part of a day's work. I've been blown up before. Have a couple of beers, go to bed. Went to work the next day. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me because the situation's ongoing. It's not like it's over. You're in the in battle. I couldn't hear. Uh, I had trouble seeing, but I met up with Gary Ayres and uh, Gary was, led the investigation from the arson squad and did a fantastic job, his team, and uh, walked through the scene. And uh, how the hell I did that, I'll never know, but I walked through the scene with them very carefully <laughs> and described what had happened. I was actually the first witness at the at the committal because I'd seen what was happening and whatever's now, I was fine. I went home. I had to go home that afternoon because I, I had a shocking migraine headache and I was off for a couple of days. I can't think what it was, but uh, a month later I had uh, my first panic attack. Ah. And that, again, was a very interesting story because uh, it was the middle of the night and those people who have had a really severe anxiety or panic attack will tell you that's absolutely terrifying. And my daughter, Rachel, at the time, witnessed it with my wife and they called. And it's like you're having a stroke and you're dying and I'm crawling along the ground. Of course, I'm hyperventilating and <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. And my daughter, Rachel, saw me having this panic attack. Anyway, I started getting treatment and I, I won't go into all of that. But, you know, I still suffer a little bit, but most of it's from Cyprus rather than the Russell Street bombing. But every time I had an anxiety attack for about the next 12 months, so did she. We weren't even together. She'd, she'd be kilometres away mm. and I'd ring her and say are you okay and she said oh, I just had one dad oh. same as me and she actually went to the crimes compensation tribunal uh, along with me and she got a bigger payout than I did because she was so young and she suffered from those anxiety attacks. As we were saying before it was a particularly hairy period. Mm. Yes. There was this war going on wasn't yes. there and I think these days people don't understand they don't know about it and certainly we don't have the armed robbery that we had then. Why why is armed robbery not a common crime anymore like it was back then? Armed robbers back then were the biggest, heaviest crims mm. in the country. Well, I was actually in the armed robbery squad before I went to the first Wow. And, and that was the big, like now homicide's seen as the glamour squad and that's what yes. all the TV shows are made about. But back in the day, the armed robbery squad was the mm. glamour squad. They were tough. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, we worked for eight, drank for six yep. and then did the same the next day. You were the hard men of the coppers. Well, you, you probably, yeah. Hmm. I, I was lucky I worked with a fellow by the name of Jeff Cronk and he was Superman. But uh, when he got changed in the telephone box, he turned into a monster. But you're right, there used to be armed hold-ups on a daily basis, TOBs, hmm. banks, all that sort of stuff. In those days, what would happen is that uh, quite often 
I had a number of these criminals who came and gave themselves up. I had a reputation for being fair and not physical. And uh, they give themselves up for some tobacconist or something they'd rob just to get it for four or five months to get out of the action. And, uh, because it was too hectic. It was too hectic mm. and there was other things that they'd done. Uh, okay. And, uh, uh, of course, there was no honour amongst thieves, so the best way to get out of it was to go to Pentridge and uh, get out of the, the… Lay low for a while. The, yeah, that's right. The career criminals. and uh, But there was horrible things happening back in those times. I'm not so sure you'd call it a glamour squad, but gee, it was bloody hard work. Yeah. And you're dealing with the shit of society most of the time. But I've got a lot of time for the armed robbers detectives that I work with because they are able to deal at any level. And I, you know, I've gone from the armed robbery squad to the fraud squad and people have asked me what the difference was. <laughs> I said, with the fraud squad, you knew he did it but you didn't have a clue what they'd done. <laughs> <laughs> with an armed hold-up, you knew what had been done but you didn't know who did it. You know, it was a real uh, change for me to go to the fraudies, but I was there for many years and loved it. But so is it technology? Is that what's made um, – is it harder to do an armed robbery now? <clears throat> is that what's changed? Yeah. Less cash floating yeah. around? But there is, and you'll find that, you know, uh, the cash-out thing doesn't leave a lot of money in the registers and places. Yeah, uh, right. The CCTV and the most of the banks and whatever have got the automatic uh, shutdowns and whatever and alarms that, uh, that close the place up, ah. lock the door sometimes and, and whatever. I'd find it strange myself that there's not more. Now, there is petty stuff with, you know, just uh, smokes and alcohol and stuff like that, but mm. that's usually juvenile stuff. But uh, back in the day, these were the, the biggest crims in the country with the armed robbers. Oh, yeah. You know, those those shootings of young police officers in the streets, the silk millers and those mm. those cases, armed robbery usually, wasn't it? Armed robbers and that sort of back and forth, tit for tat yeah. stuff going on. Yeah. You might re- recall that there was also an inquisition about the use of firearms by police shooting people. Yes. Yeah. Well, they did. Um, yes, the armed robbers were saying that coppers were killing them. Yes. So they went out and killed some coppers. Yeah. 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 And a lot of it was uh, payback interrelationship with, between the bad guys because yeah. the bad guys were territorial as well. Mm. And if they didn't like someone moving in on their patch, well, away you go. And as part of the Russell Street inquiry, the most amazing investigation. I mean, that uh, that Commodore's been put back together piece by piece. So wow, really? They found parts of that car a kilometre away on the roof of a building and they rebuilt that whole thing. Now, when they went to arrest these guys, Reed pulled a gun on one of the policemen who unfortunately died, suicided three years ago and he never recovered. From that raid? Yes. Really? Yeah. So the raid itself... The perpetrators, Craig Minogue yep. and Peter Reed, yep. Stan Taylor and Rodney Minogue were acquitted yes. of the crime. What can you tell us about the raid? Well, there was 10 police that raided the place, including my friend. I don't want to mention his name because we get very upset about it. Yeah, no worries. And we dealt with him for many years after that. It was a very, very fantastic fellow. And um, Reed shot him. Okay. And right. he never recovered from that. And one of the other detectives shot Reed. So that raid was. Uh, was successful and they, they charged the four people with various offences. And, uh, you know, the, they say that there was no main offender, but I think Craig Minogue was the orchestrator of the whole thing. Interesting story about the committal. I was, as I said, the first person to give evidence about what happened because obviously, chronologically, I was able to. And I remember walking out and uh, Minogue was in the dock and he spat, spat on me as I walked past. Oh. And one of the other offshoots to that particular committal, which I'm not I'm not happy about is that uh, back in those days there used to be the night footy with North Melbourne at whatever and there was a, a whole heap of coppers and magistrates and lawyers that used to get together and have a drink and uh, and a bit of a chat 
And after this committal, I had heard that a certain magistrate, and this was hearsay, had thanked the Minogues and the other offenders for behaving themselves during the committal. And I cracked it big time. And um, I suggested to this particular person that he, these people had tried to kill me, Ian West, one of his fellow magistrates and other people, and indeed had killed one, and he thanked them for coming. I've never been able to forgive that person if that was true. After the break, Rob talks about the truth behind the so-called deaths by natural causes of many veterans of policing and other first responders. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Rob reminds us of the stressful day-to-day reality of policing. But first, he talks about the Russell Street bombing statistics. History tells us that the bombing claimed one life, that of Constable Angela Taylor, and injured 22 people. Rob takes issue with those numbers. I really challenge the 22 non-fatal injuries because... uh, I know at least two people have taken their lives as a direct result of that. I'm suffering because of that, but there's quite a few others that have suffered all the way through and may, may not be fatal, but it, it's... Life-limiting, it, life, I guess, life yeah. Life-limiting, Because it affects you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't imagine having my workplace attacked hmm. in that way, going on with life normally, um, my workplace and my vocation, you yes. know, really. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yes, it's, look, it's one of those things that... Uh, you know, I think there was one of the headlines in the age was uh, Beirut comes to Melbourne. Back then it was in Lebanon, it was the war zone, wasn't it? Again, it was bizarre, but uh, when I was in Cyprus, I had what the, what's known as Holy Land leave, where you went for a week to have a break in in uh, Holy Land, and I was in Beirut staying at a hotel, and I decided to go and stay on a kibbutz for two or three days just to see what it's like, and I came back and the hotel was gone. Oh, my God. Oh my God. It was just a smouldering wreck. Yeah. And I'm thinking I could have been sitting on my bed picking my nose there and uh, <laughs> for the grace of God go I. So. so, I mean, it seems now looking back that your PTSD was inevitable, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We've spoken about it before, haven't we, to, for instance, Narelle Fraser. Mm. It's almost like if you go into a career like the police or the Ambos or anything where you're a first responder, you're inevitably going to see stuff that none of us could ever see in our lifetime and you're seeing it multiple times and that's setting you up for you know potential mental health issues it may not be inevitable but there's some people can handle it and there's some that can't and i mean it's the aggregation of things you know people used to say to me oh when you drive around in a police car and nothing happens they're the worst times because you don't know what's coming next mm. and then you might go from job to job to job it's quite mechanical what you're doing but all of this stuff aggregates and one of the things that we never did back in my day, was uh, admit that we were soft or go home and whatever. I don't think I ever told my wife one story about whatever happened at work, mm. which is horribly wrong because now I tell people, you go home and you you debrief with someone and I talk to the wives and kids and say, debrief your dad or your mum. Well, we've okay. talked to a lot of police about this though because there's got to be part of you that doesn't want to inflict these stories on them mm. because some of these this stuff's very difficult but Ron Idles talks a lot about the fact that his wife Colleen was a mental health nurse oh, yes. so obviously she was a great support to him and, yes. and they were able to debrief you know quite thoroughly so how, how big a part did all of this play in the fact that your then wife is now an ex-wife do you think? Oh look I'd say that uh I was married for 41 years to Tina and she's a lovely person and, and whatever, but I'm quite sure that uh, that uh, my behaviour was sometimes, I, never, I was never violent, 
but I would lose it occasionally and I'd drink too much occasionally. But, you know, on the other side of it, I, I, I think that the wives and partners and kids should say to mum or dad when they come home, how was your day? Okay, just those simple words mm. was how was your day? And then debrief by, you know, I would have said, well, you know, I had some really terrible things happen today and if they wanted to take it further, it's fine. But at least you've, you've opened that door. Yeah. Uh, whereas I'd go home and nothing, probably just wouldn't worry about it. And my wife, very real, I can't remember ever asking me, how was your day or what happened today? But th that was more my fault than hers because, you know, we should have that contract. You know, I blame me. I don't, don't blame my wife and because it was, it was what everyone did back Yeah, you have to days. ask for yeah. these things that I, you need, don't you? Oh, yeah. And it's, I mean, that's it's right. It's hard to ask for the emotional support yeah. we need, you know? You no, know, I put her through some horrible times, I'm quite sure, about uh, – you know, things that happen to me in the police force. And you, and you might say it's understandable, but if I had been treated correctly at the time, and the story goes on insofar as I had no counselling whatsoever mm -hmm. from Victoria Police. I mean, these days the Victoria Police handle it a lot better if mm. you've got one of the – but, I mean, how do you manage it? Do you, do you, you know, do you send someone – counsellor out for every job you do because you might go to a fatal accident and then get another one. So you can't just go home and wait for someone to whatever. You've just got to get on with it. And also because, you know, things don't necessarily affect you in the moment, but maybe it is triggered later. I, I have flashbacks occasionally. Yeah, right. And it's typically about the mass graves in Cyprus, which is for another day. Wow, okay. Um, but also, you know, the one there's one or two and I feel you feel guilty there's one in my book which really profoundly got me, which was a, which was a, uh, which was a, uh, a fire in Blackburn, and um, we got there, and I remember it was a Maltese couple and uh, and th three kids, and mum, dad, and one of the kids got out, and the fire was well alight, and dad, he had two more kids inside, and dad had apparently before I got there, tried to go back in and, and rescue the kids. Well, he, he got about two paces in there and asphyxiated. Anyway, once the fire had gone, I had to go in with the fires and whatever, and there was this uh, four- or five-year-old boy laying on top of his two-year-old sister, burnt to a crisp, trying to protect her. And, uh, you know, for anyone that sees kids and things happen to kids and whatever, you know, that is just something that just never leaves you, doesn't No. You just can't. The smell of it, the, the look of it, you know, this poor little kid, how brave he was. You know, and we're worried because we got a sore back, you know. And so what, what does happen after, after you've been oh, to a scene like that? Went to the next job. That's, mm. you know, you can't have counselling after every job, but you've got to have counselling after that. No, I never had counselling about that. That's Yeah, that's unbelievable. But there was no – look, it wasn't set up to, to do – Yeah. We didn't have any uh, – there was no um, procedures or protocols mm. in place at that time. Um you know, you relied on your sergeant or whatever and your sergeant just get on with it, you know. Or at the pub afterwards when oh, you're no, debriefing no, that, over yeah. pots of beer and drinking. That's a very good point that you've brought up because the police club back in those days used to stay open in, in Mackenzie Street until the last copper left. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've had some real battles with people about, you know, drinking and whatever and I, I'm still a little alcohol dependent but I'm not alcoholic. I've had that all tested and whatever. I'd like to drink less, but it's not too bad. I've got it pretty much under control. But, you know, we had a saying that uh, all of us people, don't you dare have a drink. I mean, what do you do? I mean, how do you debrief something like that? You know, we used to just go and drink ourselves. Stupid. Well, it's self-medicating and, and there wasn't the awareness of 
What's the your effect of what you see, yeah. you know, mm. and how it permeates your soul. Like that and black humor. Well, yeah, because cops are very well known for that, aren't they? Yeah. The dark sort of, well, what outsiders would think is inappropriate, but within those confines of, oh, yes. you know, yeah. it's totally understandable. Look, I had a couple of years in charge of the audio visual division, and, and uh, our guys used to go to every bad fatal and videotape and take photos and also to all murder scenes and whatever. And I was a chief inspector then and I went with them. Uh, if they got called out at two o'clock in the morning, I went as well because my view was I didn't, I couldn't support with what they needed if I didn't know what they did. So mm. I carried the camera with my gum boots on walking through scenes where there was blood up to your ankles. And I think the last count was 126 different fatals that I saw mm. uh, or saw the result of and during that time uh, or saw videos of that my trips had done. Uh, we, I got a thousand pornographic videos given to me that they did a raid in Doncaster, and I had to, I had to rate them you know, in terms of just segregate different pieces of them. I'd, I'd walk out and vomit, you know, and someone would have to take my place for a while, and then I'd go back in and walk out and vomit. So, so to answer, and there was no setup back in those days, and I'm not being critical. That's an observation. The Victoria Police, you know, should have had something set up. And indeed, I had a little bit to do with what's happening now with the uh, with the retired police because, uh, as you'll see on the back of my book, Ken Lade giving me the police star. Ken, I had lunch with Ken and the other three, four other commissioners that particular day when I was getting that award. And, um, and Ken said to me, he said, how are you now, Rob? And I said, Ken, you are the first police officer to ask me that since 1987. And he said, it's not good enough, is it? And I said, mm. no. And um, and I started to do some work on this, a similar model for Victoria Police as they have with Veterans Affairs. And unbeknownst to me, a, a lovely policewoman by the name of Vicky Key was doing the same thing out in the western suburbs. So we got ads together. I had a couple of meetings with her and, and we developed a bit of a business plan to establish the same sort of foundation and structure as Veterans Affairs for retired police because mm. once you're gone, that's the end of you. They don't care. Couldn't mm. care. Anyway, to get that going, we needed some funds. So I said to uh, John Laird, who's the president of the Police Association, he said, what do you need? I said, we need $6,000. And we had the money in five minutes. Yeah, because that does not seem like a big ask. No. And you've probably seen the recent walk that the Chief Commissioner did with the yeah. Secretary of the Police Association yeah. to raise money for that particular function. Now, I had nothing to do with that anymore because I can't do DVA and the police. Mm -hmm. And Vicky and, and, uh, and some other people have done a marvellous job. There's a much greater understanding now of, of the needs of uh, veterans and first responders. And one of those things is that I we identified is the general run-of-the-mill psychologists and psychiatrists haven't got a clue. They just simply don't understand. You've got to have those people who are savvy with, uh, with the actual work that happens. So part of that whole structure was to, uh, to identify people out in the regions who uh, were psychologically savvy about first responders, and I'll go back to my initial point was fight and flight. You know, if you go back to the Army, the Australian Army were totally different to uh, the US. Uh, if you were ambushed, you run at them, and that's how we dealt with an ambush, whereas the, <laughs> the Americans go to the high ground and, and blow it all up. But uh, UK and, and the Australian soldiers were taught if you ambush right, you say ambush right and you run at them and run through them and get to the other side, So if you can. <laughs> so that, that's the sort of attitude that I have with everything and I've had recent incidents where I've stepped in. I'm 72, I'm reasonably agile and fit, but I've stepped in and actually took a knife off a bloke in the train who was going to stab this Indian boy 
and I got attacked in uh, near Flagstaff Gardens by a couple of Sudanese boys who wanted my wallet and my watch, and I told them it wasn't a good idea. Anyway, the van pulled around the corner as these guys were limping away, and uh, <laughs> what'd you do? <laughs> Well, I, I just told him it wasn't a good idea. I said it's not a good idea. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the van crew got out and said, uh, because they went down a lane, and they said, uh, you've probably dealt out better punishment than they'd get from the courts. Uh, we'll see if we can find them. But, uh, so I still haven't lost that. If I get into an, an argument, you know, I've got to be very careful to get into an argument because whether I'm right, wrong or indifferent, I want to fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so but I've pulled me in a lot on that, you know, socially. We know, oh God, socially. We know the AFP has got a problem, and they know they've got a problem. Yes, and I, I guess maybe it's a similar situation. Do you think that they don't have the specialised psychological support? Perhaps the, we're up to four Australian Federal Police officers who've taken their own lives on the premises mm. with their firearms in the mm. last three years. Well, how many have we got in Victoria that have taken their own lives? I mean, uh, there's some that you don't know about, and one of the things that I've asked to happen, and I hope it is, is uh, when there's a, a death, pardon me, for a minute, just have a drink. Yeah, go for it. Uh, when, when there's a sudden death, um, police fill out a form called a set of 83s, which is a, a death notice to the coroner, it goes to the coroner's court, and that's every death, pretty much. There's no uh, facility on that form to say whether they're a veteran or police officer or a first responder or whatever. Ah. So how do you measure this sort of stuff? So what we've got as a result of that is we've got people taking their own lives of dying or dying of, in brackets, natural causes, mm. and we don't know how many of them are ex-military or whatever. So what are we measuring? We need to have data about that so we can actually measure it because I know dealing with some of the veterans that I deal with, I mean, they are in a shocking way. They are in a shocking, shocking way. You know they've got, they forget to take their medicine and they, you know they just they just drink themselves stupid. Uh, they've got nothing to live for and it's you know they die of natural causes. Well, it's not natural causes at all. It's um, alcoholism, liver, and all that sort of stuff. So they drink themselves to death. So that's a means of suicide in my view. People say you know why do you do what you do? And I mm. said it's part of my rehab. Absolutely part of my rehab because I see it when I deal with new people. I see. It's like looking in a mirror. So I find it quite easy to get at their level and I find that I have had a great deal of success with some people in terms of turning their life around. Okay, uh, I was never suicidal, I've got to say that, but I do recognise the song. I, I, had to, <laughs> I remember walking into an ex-policeman's shop in Croydon and with my partner at the time and said hello, I hadn't seen him for 20 years, walked out and I said, I've got to go back. She said, why? I said, I've just got to go back. I went back and said to him, Richard, his name was, and um, I said, Richard, let's go out the back and have a smoke. Went out the back and I said, tell me about it. He just broke down. He was drinking a bottle of whiskey a night and having two or three Xanax before he went to bed and smoking 100 cigarettes a day and uh, all that sort of stuff. And he turned his life around. I'm not saying that, but I think that was the circuit breaker that, that actually got things moving along for him to get himself a lot better. He said I was brutal with him, and he, we're great mates. But he, he, if he listens to this, he was bloody brutal. Well, <laughs> and I don't think he enjoyed me being brutal. But, uh, but at the end of the day, there is some people you've got to be really kid glove, and other people got to be brutal. And 
you know, I probably went over the top a bit with Richard, but at the end of the day, he's he's fine. You know, he's fine. He's off the alcohol. He, I'll stop smoking as well. So is he. He drinks moderately, and uh, I call mine moderately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. um, so I have this. I seem to have this innate ability to start start talking to people, and I'm actually seeing. It's like watching a TV show, and I'm looking at these people, and I can see that I can see that the devil's dancing around in their in their brain, and I'm able to get in there fairly quickly and say, you know, have you ever thought about having a chat to someone or whatever? And it's amazing how many people uh, respond pretty much straight away and say, no, no, I'm fine. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, so. Look, it's been interesting. It's been it's actually quite rewarding in lots of ways. You know, we've had some really good victories, and uh, and apart from. One or two, and particularly the guy that was shot by Reed. Uh, when we lost him, we still all just suffer. Uh, and in fact, I've got one traffic conviction for 0.05, which happened the night that he died. And I, I, I just blew over a little bit, but we'd, we'd met at the pub to talk about it. And I was, I was only a little bit over, but it was the only thing. You know, it was just, I just said, yeah, do what you have to do. You know, we were really in a bad space, yeah. and it, it seemed quite innocuous compared to him hanging himself. And we'd only spoken to him, you know, fairly recently. So, and that was a direct result of Reed shooting. How that, many years? How many years after that raid did oh, this man take his own life? Three years ago. So that's over twenty years. Yeah. Wow. But that's, he was—he wasn't well all the way through. That's what I mean. I think we don't understand that either. How long people can battle mm. and fight? We, we think to ourselves, that was twenty years ago. Yeah, I know. How, seems how, like yesterday. Yeah, really. Oh, yeah, seems like yesterday. And the, and when you say something like, "Oh, the mass graves of oh, yes. of where? Where was it? In Cyprus. Cyprus. I can see it. when you say that. I can see how present you are in that. Mm. And and mm. yet, how long ago was that? Nineteen seventy-four. But when you see an open grave with the bodies in there that have been set alight alive. Wow, yeah, okay. Uh, mm. um, or some of them would have been alive when that was set alight. Yeah. Um, that stays with you forever. I mean, it's like yesterday, I can still smell it. I think that's part of what we need to understand about this kind of trauma is mm. that it, it doesn't, time doesn't heal it, time no. doesn't change it, make it any better at all. It's still really present. We saw some horrible things and... And uh, it, it did affect her. I mean, I was 26, I think, or 27. We we didn't think we were coming home. Mm-hmm. We just didn't think we were coming home. We lost one fellow. He got blown up in a landmine. And uh, I think they sent a shirt sleeve home in a coffin or something like that. And we had the opportunity. Whitlam said he'd send a Pontus plane over or a RWF plane over to pick us up. And we all we had a meeting and said, no, nah, no, nah, we've got a job to do. We're staying. We're, we're quite safe. Fight, no bullshit. flight. That's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. And we all said, no, we're staying. We've got a job to do with these people. We were unarmed. We were very highly regarded by everyone except the, the Turkish invaders and the Greek invaders because the two mainlands got involved. And the only uniforms they understood were their own or their, the enemy. So we got caught in crossfires and all sorts of things that, that, uh, that happened to us. But you know, we got through physically unscathed. Oh, I had scratches and bruises and got blown up a few times and just uh, the periphery. Just minor shit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah that is amazing thank you so much we'll be issuing a special russell street bombing edition of our newsletter this week with photos and articles to give you a thorough understanding of the magnitude of the attack to sign up for the newsletter just visit our website australiantruecrimepodcast.com 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.